Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition here at SACPA. Um, today, we have Dr. Ian Urquhart with us, and um, we're going to get started right away. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis nations of Alberta, Region 3, and we pay respects to their past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship to the land. SACPA is very thankful for the continued support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, we have Dr. Ian Urquhart with us, talking about public consultation and Alberta politics. What's going on? Dr. Urquhart is the Conservation Director of Alberta Wilderness Association and a Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Alberta. His 2018 book, Costly Fix, Power, Politics and Nature in the Tar Sands was shortlisted for the Canadian Political Science Association's Donald Smiley Prize. The award given to the best book published related to the study of Canadian government and politics. Thank you so much for joining us today and um, I very much look forward to your talk. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Annalise. Um, I would just like to begin by thanking SACPA for this, uh, for this invitation and, for, uh, and also to thank the sponsors, uh, Shaw, Lethbridge Herald and the University of Lethbridge. Uh, years ago I had the privilege of being at a SACPA session and I think that this is one of the really uh, wonderful uh, forums that exist in this province to inform the public about a wide variety of issues. So you do a, a really important public service here, and it's really a privilege to be part of that this morning. Uh, and I'd also like to thank Annalise uh, Van Ayers and, and, and Laurie Schultz uh, for helping me uh, get here this morning. So if I could have the outline slide up now, Annalise? All right, there we go. Okay, so I'm here to talk about public consultation. I will get to coal. Um, there are a few steps I want to take before talking about the coal issue and the current public consultation on coal in Alberta. So what I want to do this morning is essentially say a few words about why a public consultation on coal is vital. Then I want to, I'm a recovering political scientist. I want to go back to put those boots back on and say a few things about the democratic political context of consultation. We'll talk about framing, about issue definition, the importance of scripts, those sorts of things. Then I'll, I'll say something about a consultation that just completed here in Alberta, and that is a part of the Crown Lands vision uh, strategy that the province has proposed. And this was a consultation involving sustainable recreation. Uh, it only involved a survey, but I think it's instructive to my message this morning. Uh, and then we'll get into the coal consultation, look at its structure, look at the survey, look at terms of reference, those sorts of issues. So Annalise, if I have the next slide, please. All right. So why is this vital? So why is a public consultation on coal development or, or the future of the Eastern Slopes, why is it a vital question? Well, I think substantively, uh, possibly, uh, we are on the verge of making the most significant land use decision in Alberta since the 1990s tar sands boom. Uh, what happens doesn't just depend on what we do in Alberta. I think international markets for coal will have an important role to play here. But substantively, this is a, this is a huge deal. And I think for that reason alone, it demands a public consultation. Uh, a second point to make about why a public consultation is important here is because I think it could revive, it, it, this one is not going to do this, but I want to put this idea out in your, in, into your head anyways. Uh, a public consultation could revive what was a really healthy participatory precedent here in Alberta. Uh, back in the days of Peter Lougheed, and I'm not going to go on and say how wonderful Peter Lougheed was, he was good in some respects, but I have questions about what he did on others. But I think one of the really promising things that he continued was something that the social credit had created, which was an independent environment conservation authority. And that environment conservation authority and its design is really reflected at the bottom of this slide, 
in respect to what the preferred design I would like to see for consultation in Alberta. And the ECA played a really fundamental role in establishing the Eastern Slopes policy, the coal policy, and any number of other issues involving an interface between economics and environment. Uh, it, it was really a uh, uh, path-breaking uh, forum in Alberta, and I wish we had that today. Broad scope. So a public consultation on coal has to have a broad scope. And here's where I ask, is, it, is this about developing coal, or is it about the future of the eastern slopes? And I think that this will get us into the, 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 uh, the question of how issues are framed, but we should have, in my view, a public consultation that is very broad. That is something like the ECA would have done in the 1970s. That this should be about the future of the eastern slopes, not just about developing coal. And what my fear and what my reservation is about this process is I think it is more that first question. It is more about how do we develop coal in Alberta and not about the future of the eastern slopes. So when it comes to a preferred design, I mean, this is what, you know, if I was king, this is what I would have liked to see. I would have liked an independent uh, expert review panel that would be empowered to hold public hearings, that would be uh, able to uh, receive briefs and submissions from the public and organizations, and then would make policy recommendations to, to cabinet. And we do, as I'll point out later, I mean, we do have some of that here. We have the independence we have the recommendations to the Minister of Energy portions. Uh, we don't have an expert panel. Uh, and we still are waiting nearly a month into this exercise. What's going to happen with respect to virtual public hearings? Are briefs and submissions going to be invited? What are the timelines for that? And another, if you don't want to go, and I'm sure this government didn't want to go uh, to revive something like the ECA, um, think back to uh, Premier Ed Stelmach's royalty review panel after he became leader of the Conservative Party, Progressive Conservative Party in Alberta. Because I think that's also an excellent model of what an expert-led, inclusive participatory process would look like. And maybe for people who are you know, sort of left of center ideal, ideologically, um, uh, or maybe for everyone for that matter, of all ideological persuasions, um, this notion of having expert-led inclusive participatory processes is not an idea that only one political party or interest has a monopoly on. Uh, next slide, please, Alice. Okay. So here, here's, the, here's the political science part. And if there's one thing I wish you will remember from today, it's this first quote from Richard Johnson's book, Public Opinion, and public, or public policy and public opinion in Canada. In a mass democracy, one of the key political skills is the ability to frame questions. This is vital when we talk about public consultation processes, because it's not just about sort of opening up your ears to listen to what the public says. It is very much about framing questions in a way you hope that will support your political agenda. So when it comes to this political context, issue definition is crucial. We'll, we will see struggles, and you see struggles between political parties in the legislature over the agenda. Apparently, we have a rather large budget deficit in Alberta. How are we gonna deal with that moving forward? Are we gonna cut expenditures? Are we gonna maintain essential public services? So there's a struggle going on there between how the issue is framed, how are we going to deal with it? And I put an idea in your head and how I framed it here. I've said essential public services. So I'm trying to get you to, to come to my position that these public services are essential ones and we should preserve them. The importance of scripts. One thing that you see a plenty with respect to the coal issue in Alberta is scripts. Uh, when you go back to Minister Savage's announcement of May of last year, you will see um, several times in her statement, uh, in her news release, talk about a modern coal policy. Okay? We want something that's modern. 
We have modern regulatory processes in Alberta. Um, and she contrasted that with an outdated 1976 policy. So that's the script. I mean, that's the script that we had been receiving since last May about coal in Alberta. Don't worry, Albertans, be happy, because what the province is really about is developing a modern coal policy and replacing this well-intentioned but outdated policy from 1976. Um, the last two, the, 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 maybe I'll just focus on the last bullet point and then uh, and then go on, uh, then go on, because um, what what Johnson was arguing about public opinion is that it really is a political resource, and it's something that should be evoked. It's something that should be mobilized. It's something that should be shaped. And so this business about majorities are built or split by the framing of questions, I think is vital to any public consultation exercise that you're considering, whether it's coal, whether it's healthcare, whatever. This notion is really, is really important because it is about government's efforts to structure choice. It is about government's efforts to control political agendas. Have that next slide, please, Emily's. All right, thank you. So I, I want to give you, a, try to do this quickly, but want to give you a, an example of a completed consultation that has now produced a government, you know, a government policy at the end of the day. What this is, this is the, the legislation that was introduced recently, Bill 64. What it does is essentially allows the, the province to charge a uh, public lands camping pass to introduce that uh, in Alberta this year. Now, note how the government framed the decision. So this is from the minister's, Minister Nixon's news release about this. This pass was a 2019 platform commitment and was included in budget 2021 as part of Alberta's common sense conservation plan. Now, three things are really noted here. First of all, what the government is trying to tell us is, hey, don't be surprised. I mean, we said we were going to do this. I mean, we said this in our platform, and if that's not enough for you, we said it in the budget, the last budget, the current budget. You know, we, we're, we're going to go ahead and do this. So what the government is trying to do with this is trying to say to you again, like, there's no reason to be surprised, Albertans. You should have known this was coming. The second noteworthy thing here is the notion that, geez, you know, my spidey senses go off. I should, I should be a bit concerned about this. But hey, it's a common sense conservation plan. So how, I, I want to seem like a reasonable person. How am I going to be able to object that something that's commonsensical? Okay. And the third point that's, that's important to note here is, I won't comment about the common sense part, but this was not mentioned in their 2019 platform. This was not included in budget 2021. So, what we see here is an effort to frame the decision in a way to get us to accept something that the government has done without interrogating it, without, without really taking a critical eye and asking ourselves whether it's true or not. Uh, and they've done this in this case, not with selective information, but with misinformation. Uh, it wasn't what, what, the, what the UCP promised in their platform in 2019 was a $30 fee on off-highway vehicle users. What they promised in 2019 was a $30 fee on camping trailers. They didn't say anything about a public lands camping pass then. Okay, so how do we get to the decision though? And this is, why, this is how surveys get used to frame the engagement. Surveys are used to frame the prior public engagement that took place before this decision was made. And I think it's fair to say, and I think the social scientist in me says, you know, it's fair to say that what the government did here was use certain scripts in order to suggest how the normal person should respond. You know, if you consider yourself normal, this is how you should respond to what it is we're asking you about. And I'll focus just on one part of this here, and that's the funding for recreation part of a survey that the province put out on their website, on the Alberta Environment and Parks website, late last year, November, December, some, somewhere in there. And what I would suggest to you is that 
that survey and this section in particular creates a frame where unless you're really critical you're going to come away thinking that user fees are normal user fees are just what everybody does so in the preamble to this section what does it say well in part it says most other provinces and states have access fees to their provincial state parks well that's sort of true but but let's forget about whether it's sort of true or not uh, what the government is telling you is that look everyone's doing this you know access fees to provincial and state parks aren't unusual so and I, I won't I won't go into the weeds on on this one here but essentially in my view what the government is trying to do is they're trying to condition you and encourage you to support user fees because everyone else is doing it okay so once you're if you're there if you want to consider yourself normal and you buy into the notion that well everyone else has access fees to provincial state parks the the survey then leads you towards the conclusion that the government wants you to come to namely this other one that user fees are the right approach for enabling sustainable recreation opportunities on provincial crown land so what they've done here is they've taken the fact that provinces have access fees to get into provincial parks and they've now they've now evolved that they've morphed it into a question where they're essentially tell encouraging you they're not telling you they're encouraging you to see user fees as being the right approach to doing something that's really good sustaining or enabling sustainable recreation but on all provincial lands not just state parks anymore so i think bill 64 is a good illustration of what johnson is talking about and i think what the coal consultation is also about and this is an effort to frame an issue what do we do on access to public lands in a way that favors the government's interpretation of what should happen so the next slide please Annalise okay so here we are we um, how, so what about the coal consultation um, in terms of its structure uh, as I as I mentioned earlier uh, it, it goes part of the way in um, in satisfying King Ian's idea about what uh, what a uh, exercise like this should look like it is it is independent um, but it isn't expert I mean dr. Wallace can 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 argue quite rightly that he has uh, a, a uh, an academic background in environmental sciences um, but that's it you know, that he is the only member of the panel who has that sort of that sort of background um, I think there should have been more of that um, so it, it, in part the you know the expert panel or pardon me the independent panel goes uh, goes some direction towards what I would have hoped to see um, and the we don't know yet refers to this notion of yeah well again will we have hearings if so when are they going to start are you going to take submissions and briefs from the public and organizations before you have those hearings we don't know yet so you know even though the coal consultation was announced on March the 29th we still don't have uh, as many details about it as I think we should have now I know that the, the committee itself has been charged with um, setting up the processes by which it's going to proceed but come on I mean the minister the minister in setting terms of reference could very easily have said that virtual hearings would be something that we should do and does it really matter if 52% of Albertans think that public hearings should be held isn't it just the principle important that this is something that should take place full stop or that people should be able to submit briefs to the committee full stop I mean you know we're almost a month into this and we still haven't answers to those important questions as far as the survey goes it's not as bad as the sustainable recreation survey I talked about earlier but I still think for those of you who completed it it was very much a survey about how do we develop coal and it wasn't a survey about the future of the eastern slopes 
I, you know, I think it's important to note. It's important that after the government asks us if we're affected by coal, the next question is about the economic impacts of coal. Are we aware of what those economic impacts are? The next question wasn't, what do you know about the environmental impacts of coal mining? So I, I mean, I think this is very much a survey that was designed to get us to comment to the government, give us, give them our feedback about how coal may be developed. Uh, next slide, please, Emily's. Okay, so we had a news conference last week. I, I didn't arrange it. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you know, I, I have. Believe me, I have. I have very little influence with the provincial government. Um, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't organize it in order to uh, to coincide with this morning's presentation. So, but, but what it did tell us last week about the consultation, um, there's good news there. Uh, and the good news, but the good news is, is it really about the consultation? I'm not so sure. But the good news is, there's a halt to exploration. Yeah. So companies like Cabin Ridge and Valerie Resources are not going to be able to uh, do the road building and other exploration, the drilling activities that many have been so concerned about on the eastern slopes that have taken place over the last two to three years. Okay. That halt to exploration is a real positive to be sure. But here, you know, there is a grain of salt to this. And, and I'm putting it to you this way. I mean, I'm glad the government followed what struggling coal companies are doing, uh, which is canceling their exploration programs because they have no cash to do them. Uh, so the struggling coal company here is Atrium Coal, which is the sponsor and the proponent of the Isolation North and the Elands, oh, pardon me, the Isolation South and the Elands South projects just north of Grassy Mountain in the Crow's Nest. Um, Atrium Coal announced that they were canceling. Their, they weren't going to do any exploration activities this year because they're, they're desperate. They need to preserve cash flow. Um, I think what's also important about this is that this is something that is completely within the purview of the Minister of Energy. Um, yeah, there, I have a digression there that I will avoid. Um, and this is important with respect to this sort of notion of the terms of reference and what committees can and cannot cannot do. So first point about last week's news conference, good news there to be sure, the halt to exploration is a good thing. Um, I don't know if any of you listened or watched the news conference, but I think Dr. Wallace seemed a bit annoyed with, uh, with what he called the negative tone of comments about uh, the terms of reference and was encouraging a constructive dialogue uh, from the public on, uh, on the committee. And I guess this is mea culpa time for Ian because I did call it a staggering betrayal of the public trust. So I guess that's a negative tone in that particular, in that particular comment. I, I do wish, and, 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 and Dr. Wallace is certainly, entire to, is certainly entitled to say, you know, some people are being too negative about this, fair enough. But I think he also should have spent some attention looking at how the terms of reference were drafted in the first place. What people like AW, what, what a person like myself was commenting on was something that had been drafted by the Ministry of Energy. Okay, The Ministry of Energy, had it chosen to or had it been inclined to, could have included a statement about how welcome environmental concerns would have been in terms of the committee's deliberations. It didn't do that. So, you know, if you got negative tone in comments, Perhaps it was because the terms of reference that the Minister of Energy developed were so so terribly narrow. And the second point here is that these were terms of reference that the date on them says March the 29th, the day that the uh, committee was announced. Well, why were they kept under wraps for two more than two weeks? Now, in the world I live in, when governments have good news, they want to give it to you. I mean, you know, so if this was, a, in my view, if this was good news, if the terms of reference was a good news story, they would have released them on March the 29th. Uh, governments 
hide news they don't want to be out there. So I think when Dr. Wallace is 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 criticizing um, sort of the reaction of people to the terms of reference, he should also direct some of that within the government of Alberta to how the whole terms of reference issue was handled there. Uh, next slide, please, Annalise. Thank you. Okay, so this is this is, I think, really sort of the with respect to coal. This is the most important point um, that I think I have to offer you this morning, uh, and the terms of reference are still, in my mind, a big concern when it comes to moving forward on this. And it is for this reason: the the, the terms of reference, and 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 Dr. Wallace said. There's no reason why we can't talk about environmental concerns um, that they are included under the administration of the Minister of Energy. So, as this this committee, though limited to that, limited in that way. Sorry for not making this as clear as maybe I should. Limited as they are to matters of administration under the Minister of Energy. I think the terms of reference ignore the fact, and it's a plain, simple fact, that a coal policy is land use planning. And as such, doesn't it belong under something like the Alberta Land Stewardship Act? Or if not, doesn't it at least, or shouldn't it at least involve more than just the Ministry of Energy? Shouldn't a department like Environment and Parks be part and parcel of this? Thanks, Annalise. Um, shouldn't they be included? Shouldn't they have participated? Shouldn't they have contributed to these terms of reference? So the terms of reference still concern me. And one of the impressions I had from watching the news conference last week is that perhaps Dr. Wallace and Minister Savage are not on the same page when it comes to this consult. When it comes to this consultation, this is a really lengthy quote from what Minister Savage said last Friday. But I think it's, it, it goes to this, it goes to the heart of what I'm trying to get at here. And that is, she conceptualizes a coal policy as not being a land use policy. I don't get it. I mean, I really don't, I, I just don't understand how you can say that a coal policy where you're gonna designate parts of the province to be mined uh, gently by, by, by surface mining operations, that that's not a land use policy. Of course it's a land use policy. So this quote from Minister Savage, you know, she says, look, we're gonna listen to what you say about environment. Of course we wanna hear your concerns, but these consultations are about coal policy. It's not about the broader land use planning initiatives. It's not about water allocations. It's about coal. So. Let's get the coal policy and vision done first, and then we'll decide if we have to have a land use planning process after that. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. At the last slide, please, Annalise. All right, let me scroll down here. Okay. So what comes next? What does the road ahead look like? Um, you know, I, I, I hope if we're gonna have, I, I don't wanna see any more surveys from the government. Um, if we do, I hope they're more honest than what I think we've seen so far from government. Uh, what we should get is the survey, complete survey results for what they've done so far. Virtual meetings, absolutely. This is something that we absolutely need to have. A formal call for submissions and briefs, absolutely. And we've got to get going on this. I mean, the minister's deadline is less than seven months away. That's not very long if you're going to have invite briefs, if you're going to have public hearings. Last point I'll leave you with today is this one. So as you observe and hopefully participate in this, don't forget Johnson's insights about the politics of public opinion. Don't forget the importance of framing in Johnson's view of public opinion and public consultations. And sadly, perhaps, the framing of issues, the shaping and controlling of the political agenda may at the end of the day matter more than the future of the Eastern Slopes. So keep Richard Johnson close to you as you look at what comes ahead down the road. Thanks very much for being here this morning. 
Excellent. Thank you so much um, for that presentation, Ian. And I will just jump right into the questions. Our first question comes from Belinda Croson. Do you believe that do you believe the halt in exploration is related to the information regarding donations to various parties? That mm. even when politicians don't consult the public, and then in brackets, or do it well, money still talks? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Um, and, and for me, I think what's the reason, I mean, it could, I don't know, to be honest, and, and uh, whether, whether that's the case or not, but... I think what's really uh, fundamental about the question is this point, and that is, does it, you know, how is, how is political support evolving on this issue right now? And if, if I was a member of the UCP party, uh, and if I was in an important position, I would be looking at those sorts of donation numbers, and I would be saying, hmm, I don't know what, but we're not doing things right. You know, and we have to do some changes in order to get the wallets of Albertans open and money coming in our direction, not in the direction of the New Democrats. So coal could be part of that. I mean, I think it should be part of that. I mean, this this, this issue politically has never made any sense to me. Uh, when you have Southern Alberta ranchers, you know, those noted left-wing radicals, uh, Southern Alberta ranchers, when you have them mad with a conservative government, hello? I mean, <laughs> you, you might want to reevaluate what you're doing um, or whether it's or, or whether the, the, the donations and the swing have been the results of COVID or, or, or what have you. I'm not sure. But, I, you know, I, I think it is certainly what it should. I mean, I'll, I'll take the question this way. I think what it should do to uh, the UCP party is just sort of reexamine whether or not this coal thing makes any political sense at all. And um, I mean, I, I have my views and I don't think it does make any political sense. And if I was a strategist for the UCP, I would be saying, look, let's eat some crow on this. Let's just move on and, um, you know, try to win back people who have been loyal supporters for years. Thank you. Um, Tom Moffat uh, is online and he has two comments and I'll read them both out. I don't know if you want to, it's certainly not posed as a question. Um, it's obvious that we need an independent Eastern Slopes consultation run by somebody other than the government to avoid bias. And then the second comment he has is hearing environmental concerns might not be necessary. Nice quote. And I think that pertained to your slide there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, Tom, I mean, uh, look, I think you're absolutely right. I do think that this issue uh, is such that really demands the sort of wide-ranging consultation that you're talking about. Uh, one of the things in looking back at this, and I, I, I do think, and, um, you know, for, I think the former premier, for example, in her, in her, um, her private member's bill, it's a uh, it's a it's a good you know like halting exploration I guess it's a good positive step, but I do think that to too great an extent on this issue, um, we are prisoners of that 1976 policy. Much as I prefer it to what the government announced last year, the world has changed a lot since 1976. It, we don't. We didn't know what we know about selenium. We don't. We didn't know what we know now about selenium pollution in 1976. I don't think I said that right. But anyways, I hope you get. I hope you know what I'm trying to say with it. You know, we have knowledge about uh, health risks, for example, to aquatic species and others now that we didn't have in 1976. So, sort of this notion of going back and recreating a policy from 1976 is a good step, but personally, I think it needs to go much further than that. So a modern coal policy to me, when it comes to the Eastern slopes, a modern coal policy is a no coal policy. That it just, it, it just, it, times have changed dramatically from what they were back then. And to my way of thinking, they've changed in a way where the modern coal policy should simply be a policy that says no to coal. Our next question comes from Timothy from the Lethbridge Herald. 
Um, wondering if you accept Minister Nixon's reinsurances that no new water allocation would be taken out of the Old Man River, above them specifically for coal mining. Says nothing has changed. Wow. Um, well, if that's true, I don't know why uh, MLAs like uh, Roger Reed were consulting with any number of groups in um you know, in, in along the eastern slopes, sort of south of south of Manton, um, about that very possibility. Um, I mean, there's there. I didn't think it was. Uh, I didn't think it was far fetched to see that the government is reconsidering the Old Man River water allocation order, which applies to those waters in the in the headwaters, like uh, the the um, contributing side to the Old Man River Dam, not what comes below the dam. Um, so I, I would say that's very hard to accept. I mean, that's very hard to believe. Um, you also have uh, another, for instance, uh, Tim, on that is that, you know, you had uh, the um, um, one of the officials from Atrum Coal uh, speak before uh, Crow's Nest uh, Town municipal council, and during that presentation, say, we have been we have been in communication with Alberta Environment and Parks, and we expect that the water allocation order is going to be changed. Now he's not saying that um, in the hope that municipalities downstream should get more water. He's not saying that because he hopes ranchers are going to get more water. He's saying that because. Uh, the coal companies do need more water to wash their coal. So I think it's, I'm sorry, it's, 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 uh, I think there's enough stuff on the public record that really uh, casts serious doubt on the accuracy of what the minister is suggesting, is suggesting there, unless they abandon it altogether. I mean, if they abandon any changes to the allocation order, then we know that only 150 acre feet can go to industry, such as coal mining. If they change the allocation order, as has been discussed, that's going to open up hundreds, thousands of acre feet of water to industry. Thanks. Okay, we have uh, two comments by Willem Langeberg. Um, that's good old Dutch name. Yes. <laughs> yes, right on. It is land use planning. And then the second comment by Willem, um, alternative industries are needed for the Crow's Nest Pass. Renewable geothermal energy is a real option for the pass. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Willem, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in this morning. And I think that uh, uh, I, I'd just like to focus on the second part of the second part of the comment and, you know, the need for alternatives. And, and I think that anyone um, I would encourage anyone who's opposing coal mining in the Rockies and foothills of Alberta to also spend some time thinking about and advocating for alternative economies for places like Crow's Nest Pass. Um, I think it's important, for example, when you look at, there, uh, there was some official support, I know this became controversial, but there was some official support uh, from the uh, elected uh, uh, the elected leadership of uh, of the Blackfoot people of of the Kanai um, of the Sisika of the Pakani to uh, their support for Grassy Mountain for that particular proposal. Well, you know, given the high rates of unemployment, given the low average incomes in those communities, I can sort of understand that. I mean, I can understand why. An elected council might think maybe there's something in this for our community. If I'm going to sit here this morning and say no to coal, I have to also, in my view, I think the responsible thing for me to do is to also be saying, well, what what's the alternative strategy that we're going to come up with for members of First Nations in Southern Alberta? What's the alternative economic strategy that we're going to come up with and support and with money governments and support 
in places like the municipality of uh, Crow's Nest Pass. So I think the alternatives is really important. We shouldn't just let the market decide if those alternatives should go ahead. Government should be actively pursuing them, and we should be telling governments to do that. Our next comment comes from Mark Godel. Halt exploration on Category 2 lands. But how about Category 3 and 4, which are yeah. also important as headwaters, etc.? Yeah. Yeah, no, Mark, that's that's a really good comment. And I think that you're, I, 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 I agree with you on that. Um, so, like, for instance, and, and down in, in, well, stay in southern Alberta, uh, when you look at the projects that are being that that this doesn't cover, I mean these announcements do not apply to um, the Tent Mountain application to to restart that mine uh, against the BC Alberta border between um, uh, the Castle Park and the BC BC Alberta, uh, just south of Highway Three. Uh, it doesn't uh, the 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 um, the cessation, the prohibition doesn't apply to that. That's Category 4 lands. It also won't apply to the Chinook project, which is another, which is a, you know, a 10,000 hectare uh, project, 10,000 uh, 10, hectare project. So that's roughly five grassy mountains in size that Montem Resources, the company behind uh, Tent Mountain, hopes to proceed with just north of Coleman. Uh, again, those are category four lands. Um, at AWA, we, we've, made the, we've, made the, we've made the point that uh, the, the reason why mining in that part, there is no ecological justification for category two and category four lands in places like the Crow's Nest, or for that matter, south of Hinton. There, there's no ecological basis for that. The reason that these categories that we're allowing mining in category four lands is because it had happened there before. Fred Bradley, a member of the panel, a member of the committee, uh, acknowledged as much when he appeared before the Grassy Mountain hearings. He said, look, well, why do we have, why do we have mining in places like Grassy Mountain? It's because we have mining, there were mining dispositions there. So it's just history. It's not ecology that really is that's responsible for that division. And you're, you're right, Mark. I mean, I think that it should be um, it, it should be broader than it is, and especially for Category Four lands, because those those projects, Chinook, Grassy Mountain, Tet Mountain, those are in that those are in the headwaters of the Crow's Nest. Go into the Old Man. Go into the South Saskatchewan. Yeah. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Great presentation, thanks Ian. Do you think the federal decision on Grassy Mountain will be crucial to whether, to whether or not other coal mining endeavors go ahead? Yeah, I, I, I do, thanks for, that. thanks for the question, Gord. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, uh, we, we do think that. I mean, I think that if, if uh, in, you know, again, if, if King Ian could, could make the world in the image he would like it to be in, uh, the federal government would, uh, pardon me, the, the review panel would recommend to Ottawa that it reject the project. Um, and I do think that if that did happen, then these, these penny stocks in Australia, like Atrium and Montem, that are hanging on right now by the skin of their teeth, would go belly up because the market investors in Australia would see that this is just not, this isn't just, this isn't happening. You know, this is just not going to happen. If, if I couldn't get that result, I would hope that the, the review panel is going to look at, oh, I mean, there are so many, anyways, there are more than a few aspects of the, of the Benga mining position that I think you could, you could, you could cite here. But, that what I hope the review panel does is impose many conditions on the proponent. In other words, that it just isn't a yes, go ahead with this, that if it's not a no, it's a yes, but with a lot of conditions attached to it. 
because I really do think that that Grassi is being viewed as, you know, sort of the thin edge of the wedge here. That if it does get approval, then that is going to encourage um, encourage the other promoters and the other speculators who are behind these projects to continue down that road. If Grassi if Grassi is rejected, then I think that sends a very negative message to these promoters and these speculators. And so for people on the for for people today, um, make a note of June the 18th on your calendar. That's the day, uh, the the latest date, the deadline for the joint review panel to issue its recommendations to the federal government about Grassy Mountain. Uh, I know AWA and I'm sure other organizations are going to be doing everything possible to try to mobilize people at that point in time to contact Minister Wilkinson and say either, you know, and, 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 and encourage him to reject this project. Our next question comes from Timothy from the Lethbridge Herald. Grassy Mountain was Category 4, even under the 1976 coal policy. How did the UCP screw this up so badly when they could have gotten Grassy Mountain under that policy? Is it overreach on their part? I, I don't think so, Tim. I mean, I think that the, the, problem, the, the problem that the, um, that the Conservatives um, had with Grassy Mountain is that the, the, the project was big enough, was large enough, that it triggered the, the need for a federal impact assessment. Uh, I think what's, what's so, failing that, if Grassy had not triggered a federal impact assessment, I think it would be a done deal. Um, and, and this is, and, and, and I base that on the, the difficulty in members of the public and people who have important stakes in these issues, the difficulty that those individuals and groups have in participating in the AER process, the Alberta Energy Regulator Environmental Assessment process. I mean, it's, uh, give you you a for instance, a group like uh, Alberta Wilderness Association would not have been, uh, I will bet my life on this, would not have been allowed to participate in a provincial environmental impact assessment hearing because we would not meet the so-called directly and adversely affected test in the environmental impact legislation. And we might very well receive, as we have received from the AER and other occasions, a letter saying that you know, Alberta Wilderness Association is, is, uh, is situated at 455 uh, 12th Street Northwest in Calgary. You are 340, you are 240 kilometers away from this project. How can you be directly and adversely affected? I kid you not, the AER does that. So I think, Tim, that the, 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 you can't really blame the UCP or the Conservatives before them um, for, you know, for Grassy being where it is today. I think that what's what's really important in the state of the grassy issue is the fact that it triggered a federal impact assessment. And that's why groups like AWA and others have been writing to um, uh, to Minister Wilkinson, urging him to uh, order a, a federal impact assessment of the Tent Mountain project. Uh, the way the federal legislation is set up, if a, if, a, if a new project is going ahead and is, a new coal mine is going ahead and it's going to produce 5,000 tons or more a day, if that's its production capacity, then that is a project that is automatically reviewed by the federal government. Okay? It automatically triggers the threshold in the Impact Assessment Act. The Tent Mountain project is designed, according to Montem Resources, to produce 4,925 tons of coal a day, 75 tons short of the 5,000 ton threshold. And so groups like AWA and others have been arguing that, look, this is, this is a distinction without a difference 
I mean, that, that's like about, that's less than a quarter of what one of those trucks carries. So what's the difference between a coal mine that's producing 4,925 tons a day and one producing 5,000 tons a day? You know, we say there isn't. So, um, so that's the, so it, it's that threshold, Tim, that's really sort of significant with respect to grassy and why it ended up the way it did. Mark Goodall, uh, Nixon is concentrating on the water allocation, but skirting the selenium pollution situation by stating that there is already a rigorous water safety program in place. Could you comment, please? Well, the, the problem, so with respect to water, the, the, the water guideline for selenium, Mark, is uh, 0. Um, what is it, 2, I will get this wrong, uh, two micrograms per liter, I think, is the is the um, uh, is the acceptable level for selenium with respect to waters in Alberta. That at least that's the guideline with respect to water in Alberta. Um, you know, a problem I think with uh, with what Minister Nixon has to say about this subject is that uh, Banga in its uh, Banga mining in its submissions before the Grassy Mountain Joint Review Panel uh, said that in terms of the waters in which it, you know, it's it's um, um, the the water that it will pollute um, said that those waters will uh, will have seven times or more that level of selenium in them. When they go, so Gold Creek, Blairmore Creek, those uh, those th those water bodies. Okay, so when Minister Nixon says that, what he's not telling you, what he's not telling us is that the the provincial government has the ability to say that. Look, although our water guideline is two micrograms per liter, we're going to allow you fifteen micrograms per liter. So yeah, the, the, I think what the minister is doing there—that's that is—or uh, what he's avoiding identifying there and acknowledging there—is that uh, he has the ability to issue site-specific water guidelines, and that those site-specific guidelines will not necessarily conform to the um, uh, not necessarily conform to the provincial ones, and. You know, the, the, the business with this, and this is what tech situation in the Elk Valley illustrates so well, it's one thing to say that, look, we have really tight guidelines. The problem tech faces in the Elk Valley is not that there are lax guidelines. The problem tech faces in the Elk Valley is its mining operations cannot get selenium down to those levels. So it's one thing to say that, oh, look, our, our, our regulations are set at this level. Okay, we're, we're really strict when it comes to it. Well, what are you going to do when the mining operation can't meet that guideline? You're going to shut them down? You know, so it's, 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 it's uh, I think he's ignoring the efforts that, um, that companies like Tech Resources have made. He's ignoring the, the hundreds of millions of dollars they've spent on trying to get selenium levels to where? To the guidelines that he's talking about we have in Alberta. So, yeah, yeah I think there's some problems with his logic. Laurie Smashnuk, is it too dreamy to promote nationally for expanding the national parks to limit coal devastation? Well, you know, that sounds like an idea from the turn of the last century, Laurie. Um, and I don't say, I don't mean that facetiously. I mean that in in the very real sense that when you look at a park like Waterton uh, National Park in southern Alberta, it was much larger uh, at the turn of the 20th century when it was created than it is than it is than it is currently. Um, you know, I think that you know maybe if you okay, I, I think that's unlikely. I mean, I think that would be hard to do. But if you wanted to do something like that, I think what you have, what you would have to do, is find a way of tying it to several other issues that get raised by coal, for example. So whether that's 
um, tying it to a tourism strategy that is going to mean great things for this part of, uh, for, the, for whatever part of Alberta you're looking at. Uh, you would do have to do something like that. If you wanted to do something like, uh, one of the things AWA is quite proud of is our involvement with the Dene Ta in northwestern Alberta with respect to the, uh, um, the Hayzama Wildland Park there. What I mean by this is that another frame you could try to put that issue in would be creating a wildland park that would preserve uh, traditional Blackfoot values, for example. So it, it's difficult. It might be a little less difficult if you try to marry that sort of idea and merge it with other concerns that are important to uh, people in southern Alberta or people generally. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Can you comment on the UCP's assurances that Alberta has strong regulatory oversight? Yeah, it's... Uh, it's, a, it's a good question, Laurie. I mean, the, the problem or a problem in Alberta is this notion of, okay, strong regulatory oversight. Um, it's hard for me to accept that that's the case when the recent history of the agency that's responsible for regulated for regulatory oversight, namely the Alberta Energy Regulator, when that recent history is marked by slashed budgets, reduced staff, in other words, where the, the UCP, when they came into power, made it very clear that they thought the energy regulatory system of Alberta wasn't making approvals quickly enough. So what the UCP did after taking power in 2019 was dramatically reduce the size of the Alberta Energy Regulator, you know, dr dramatically reduce its budget. Uh, so it, it's one thing to talk a game about, you know, strong regulatory oversight, but your record is one where you have attacked the administrative and the organizational capacity of that organization to do the very thing you claim it can do. So it, it, it's just hard to accept. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to accept that at, its, at, at face value. Our next question comes from James Byrne. Steel production is a big source of air pollution and GHG globally. Industry is going to, to clean energy for steel production. Is there a market for coal long term? Who will buy yeah. this coal? Yeah. James, I think that's a, you know, and this is uh, James, I think, from the University of Lethbridge. I mean, I think that's, uh, it's a, thanks for that question. It's a really good one. Uh, I, I do think that, that the, you know, looking ahead, it's really vital to do on this. And I do think that uh, two things are important here. Uh, and maybe just the most important one is the steelmaking industry globally recognizes that as an industry that, that contributes about 8% of total emissions globally okay, from that sector, from that sector of industry, that they have to address the greenhouse gas issue and emissions seriously. And so to that end, they are looking for technologies like using hydrogen, for example, that would be, I would think the most radical approach right now would be trying to, and there are pilot projects out there from major world steel producers to use hydrogen instead of coking coal as a way of making steel, as a part of that steel making process. So the future as recognized by the steel making industry is one where they wanna reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And that in part means using less coking coal. So they are on that track. So I think that's an important, you know, that, that is an important an important fact to note is that the industry again recognizes that it has to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions and so it's looking for processes and technologies that will let it produce coal 
without as many greenhouse gas emissions. So whether that's hydrogen, whether that's electric arc furnaces, which will recycle steel as part of the process, you know, industry is looking at that. And, and, you know, this is coming from the World Steel Association, not Greenpeace. Like this is, you know, this is this, this is the industry that's moving in this direction. And to that end, I think what's also really crucial with this is that, again, when you look at uh, an, an organization like the International Energy Agency, okay, again, hardly a radical institution, the IEA predicts that there's going to be double-digit reductions in coke and coal demand in 2030 and even more reductions out to 2040. So, you know, the world that the IEA, that the IEA sees is one where there's actually a demand for less coke and coal in the world, not more. Okay, our last question of today comes from Knut Peterson. Can you comment on the influence of Robin Campbell? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think that, that the Coal Association of Canada, uh, which Robin Campbell is the president of, was, as, was uh, very successful uh, in uh, convincing the government, or at least uh, yeah, in convincing the government and lobbying the government, to change the coal policy of uh, to abandon the coal policy of 1976. Um, you, again, you don't have to take my word for that. Instead, you can go to the provincial lobbyist registry, and you can see the meetings that the Coal Association of Canada had with Minister Nixon's department to talk about that very issue, to talk about the need to get rid of the coal, the 1976 coal policy. So I think it's, you know, I, I, I think uh, Robin Campbell and the Coal Association of Canada, and, and for those who don't know, Robin Campbell was a uh, former minister, former progressive conservative uh, member of the legislature and member of, uh, of several cabinets in, in Alberta. Um, so, yeah, I think that the Coal Association got what they thought they, they needed to get in the revoking of the policy from 1976, and I think he did play... Uh, uh, he, he certainly, as the president, I think has to has to accept some of the credit uh, or some of the blame for that decision. Interestingly, and this goes again to the, the consultation question generally. Uh, Clint, were you were you consulted about changing the coal policy in 1976? Was anybody on this who's who's still with us today uh, consulted about changing the coal policy of 1976? Of course not. The only group that was consulted about that change was the Coal Association of Canada and the coal industry. Okay, well, that wraps up today's session. Um, but before we end it, do you have a take-home message for our viewers today, Ian? You know, I think the take-home message on this is that this is, uh, I would put it this way, so I taught political science for over 30 years at the University of Alberta. Um, so I can be a rather cynical individual when I look at politics because of what I've seen over 30 years. But I do think, I think the message to take from this is that this can be stopped. I mean, the, the public outpouring against coal mining is, I think, unprecedented in Alberta. I mean, if you had told me that uh, you could create a Facebook group in mid-December, and by this point in 2021, have nearly 37,000 members of that group. I would say, you know, what are you smoking? I mean, I would, I would ask, you know, I would ask you, you know, you're dreaming. Um, so, I think the message I have for people is that, as hard as it is, uh, and there are so many things that we can be engaged on with respect to public life. And as hard as it is to find the time and the energy to do it, stay engaged on this coal issue, whether it's through AWA, whether it's through CPAWS, whether it's through the Nisapi water protectors, who, whether it's through the Protect the Rockies um, and Headwaters Facebook group, stay involved and, and put pressure on. Uh, I would say that the most important focal point moving ahead is the federal government. You know, Minister Wilkinson, the Environment and Climate Change Office in Ottawa. That's where we really should be focusing all our attention in the next several months on this. So, and remember what Johnson said, you know, remember what Johnson said about, you know, how governments want us 
to accept certain framings of these issues and reject it. Okay, lots of thank yous. Uh, Knud, Ian, uh, Patricia, Cheryl, Willem, uh, Laurie Schultz. Ian, thank you for a very informative presentation and bringing the impact and importances of the terms of references in the consultation process. On behalf of SACPA, thank you very much for joining us today. And to our viewers, we hope you join us again on Thursday for our regular session um, with Nathan Newdorf, uh, Alberta's MLA for Lethbridge East constituencies, on the topic of post-pandemic recovery. What are the main issues facing Alberta? And Ian, I hope you'll join us there and ask some good questions in the chat. Okay. <laughs> Thank, thanks so much, Annalise. It's been a real privilege. Thank you. Thank you, and we'll end the live stream right now.